We thank you for spring. We thank you that we're here tonight. And Lord, just help us be attentive to the things you want to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we go into chapter 3, finishing up here, the book of Revelation, you recall that in chapter 1, always keep in mind, verse 19, that the book of Revelation gives us an outline. Um, And in this outline, we see that John was told that write the things which you have seen. Again, chapter 1, verse 19. So in chapter 1, John here, exile uh, to the island of Patmos. And as he hears a loud voice, he turns to see the glorified Jesus that's standing in the midst of seven lampstands. He's holding seven stars in his right hand. And as we read in chapter 1, we know that those seven lampstands represent seven churches in proconsular Asia. They were historical churches that existed at that time. They were not the only churches in proconsular Asia. There were other churches, and of course other churches, throughout the Roman Empire in Greece, in Achaia, in Macedonia, and in Rome was a church. And so other churches that had been established throughout the Roman Empire. And it is interesting that Jesus, as he turns to these seven lampstands, these seven churches, he begins to dictate a letter to John. All chapters, uh, all the words in chapters two and three are red lettered because this is Jesus speaking. John is writing these words down, as you know, and he's addressing each one of those churches there. When Paul wrote the epistles, he wrote the seven churches. Here, Jesus, he's writing a letter to seven churches. And as he turns to each church, he begins to say to them, I know your works. He says that in each of the seven churches, I know your works. And he knows the works that we do here at Calvary Chapel. He knows the work that you do as an individual. And that brings me comfort because sometimes I think, Lord, do you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to live for you, do my best, provide for my family, raise my kids in the ways of the Lord, um, serving in the nursery and the children's ministry. Lord, do you really see me? And he says to you that I know your works. And what he does then to each of the seven churches is he begins to give positive affirmation to the things that they were doing well. He commends them in that. And what makes this study so powerful is, is that it applies to us individually, to us as a church. I think that all of us, that we desire, that we want to know what pleases the Lord and how we live our lives. And these seven letters help us to know the will of God, what pleases the Lord as we live for him. So we saw the positive affirmation, and then he would turn and give corrective exhortation as he would tell them the things that they needed to turn away from, to repent of. And as we go into the seventh church here, the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea, we're going to see that he has nothing positive to say about them, that it is all corrective. He has very strong words to say concerning the church of Laodicea. So let's begin to look at that in verse 14 as we read, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So we are in the second part of that outline that is given to us in chapter 1, verse 19. So John, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Jesus standing in the midst of these seven churches. It has the seven stars in his right hand. Those are the pastors, uh, the messengers of, of each of those churches. And then... The second part is then write the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the church age. And then thirdly, 
you are to write the things that will take place after this. The Greek word metatata. So when we go into chapter 4 next time, that it begins with after these things. Metatata, I looked. So chapters 4 through the end of the book is all yet future. Chapter 4 and 5 is the heavenly scene. And so it's very important for us to look at that because I believe we are going to be in this heavenly scene here. Uh, we're going to see the one on the throne. It's described to us the things around the throne and then what is in front of the throne and then the new song that is sung here in chapter 5. So the heavenly scene that we will glean a whole lot from and then in chapter 6 through 18, the scene changes back to the earth which is the tribulation period, that final set seven-year period prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in those chapters, there's a lot that is there. It talks about the, the seal judgments. In chapter 5, that we see that it is Jesus that is going to take a seven-scroll uh, seal, and those seals are going to begin to be opened up one by one in chapter 6. And then the seventh seal that is opened up, there are seven angels that will stand up, and they will blow trumpets that will bring judgment upon the earth and then the seventh angel that stands up there are seven more angels that will stand up and then begin to pour out bold judgments on the earth and so we see that God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ rejected world at this time but also there's other things that are taking place we're going to look at the 144,000 that are going to evangelize the world we're going to see the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 we're going to see that the Antichrist begins to make war against Israel after he goes into the rebuilt temple and proclaims himself as God and the world is going to turn to him and begin to worship him he will heavily persecute uh, the Jews who are going to reject him and the tribulation saints that are going to come out of the tribulation as well. We're going to see that there's a lot taking place as far as the angels that make the proclamations. And then in chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ, as he comes with his armies that are clothed in white, that's you and me. He's going to come with us. And so we are going to rule and reign with him. Chapter 20, that's the millennium reign. And then chapters 20, 21 and 22 is the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem that's going to be described to us. So we are privileged to be able to look at God's word to see what our future is. We see the future of the world that it's not good. And listen, this world is not getting more rosy and brighter. It is going to come to a disastrous end. And matter of fact, it is the Lord that says that unless those days were cut short, that man would have destroyed himself. So we don't want to put our trust and live for the world because the world is going to come to a place where it is going to uh, be very much great tribulation. Jesus said, such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And you and I have a wonderful future in that we're going to come back with the Lord. I believe that we will be raptured before the tribulation period and we'll be with the Lord in heaven and then we will come back with him in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we get the privilege to be able to see what our future is. And as we go through this, that I hope it excites us. I hope that we understand this, that we are in very unique times, that we are in the last days, and that it stirs our hearts. But as we go through the church of Laodicea here, we see that they are a lukewarm church. And we see that in verse 14, as we talk about Laodicea, this church 
is the second church that Jesus will have nothing positive to say concerning this church. The city itself, Laodicea, was a very prosperous city. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, the first church, the major church in Proconsular Asia, Ephesus, and it kind of went around in a circle, the seven churches, and all of a sudden, just east of Ephesus was this city, very prosperous, very wealthy city in the Lucas Valley that is called Laodicea. It was a city that was very close to another city called Colossae. And of course, we know Colossae because Paul wrote a letter to the church of Colossae uh, called the Book of Colossians. And also near Colossae and in that same valley of Laodicea and Colossae was another city, um, Areopolis. And it was just about six miles north of Laodicea. As I said, that the city was very prosperous because it was a banking center, uh, center. It was the wealthiest city in the whole region at that time. It was so wealthy, matter of fact, it was independent of receiving any help from Rome, um, any, uh, you know, kind of uh, building that Rome would come in as Rome was at this time just building up cities and massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, projects that were taking place. In 60 AD, it's recorded that Laodicea was leveled by an earthquake. Rome offered to come in and say, hey, we'll help you rebuild your city. They said, no, we don't need your help. Uh, We have need of nothing. We have no need of you to come in. And they would build the entire city in, uh, with their own resources that they had. So they were very self-sufficient. Um, they felt like they needed help from no one. And keep that in mind as we see Jesus address this church. So the city was not only was a city of banking, but secondly, it was known for their wool production. You see, they would raise black sheep in this area, and the wool was made into rugs and clothes that was very, very expensive. It was very much sought after, and they made a huge profit off the selling of the black wool. Uh, matter of fact, they would make also out of that wool these outer garments that were called a trimata. And the city had a nickname that it was called the city of trimata uh, after that garment because it was so popular. So it was a very wealthy city. It was a city that made uh, these garments out of black wool. And the city also was known as a place where uh, they would make eye save. And that was exported uh, all over the known world. The city was was known for that, uh, just uh, an ointment for the eye to be able to minister um, and to uh, bring relief to, to those who had uh, eye diseases or eye problems as they made this eye save. It, it was a place where there was a little bit of a medical center that was there that was attached to their pagan temple, Ascalopis, and uh, which was the healing god. So people had lots of money, and not only was the city characterized by wealth uh, and by this ice save that they would sell, the black wool that they would make these garments out of, but also the city was characterized by being an entertainment uh, place. They had uh, a 
uh, amphitheater that they built that would hold 30,000 people. And the Roman circus would come there continually and entertain the people. People came from all over to be entertained. They had other shows and plays that took place constantly. So keep that all in mind as we read about the characteristics of this church. They had a lot of wealth. They were into being entertained. And, and something else about the city that's worth mentioning, as I said, in that Lycus Valley, there is Laodicea. And just uh, a few miles from there, Areopolis uh, was located as well. And Areopolis was a place that they had these hot springs that even today that the Turkish government is tapping into those hot springs as a source of geothermal energy. And what they did was uh, Laodicea wanted to, uh, you know, be a part of this hot water, this, this hot springs that was there in Areopolis. So they built this aqueduct that would go from the hot springs into Laodicea and running this hot water for about six miles. But what they found was this, that by the time that the water got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore, but it was lukewarm. That may ring a bell with you if you've done your reading so far. Also what was going on is Colossae, about 10 miles away, that they had cold springs in Colossae. So they built an aqueduct that they ran water, this cold refreshing water from Colossae to Laodicea. But again, by the time it got to Laodicea, that it was no longer cold and refreshing, but it was tippet. It was lukewarm. So that was the city of Laodicea 2,000 years ago. And we're going to see that that is the things that marked the city and what it was known for played a very much of a factor that characterized the church. And it's interesting that Laodicea means ruled by the people. Leo, uh, peopled, Decia, rules. So Jesus is saying, listen, that I want to rule. The church wasn't being ruled or run by the Lord. So he's going to say, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you open the door and let me in. So in verse 14, as we read, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These things says the amen, which means so be it or it is done. That is uh, the word of the Lord is certain. We know the word of the Lord is true. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20 tells us for all the promises of God uh, in him are yes and in him. Amen. So Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. So Jesus identifies himself in that way, that I am the amen, so be it, it is done. Uh, amen is more than just a period at the end of a prayer. Uh, sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll hear somebody say, amen. And, and that's good, uh, because you're saying, I agree, that's good, that's true. And it's interesting that Paul, as he mentions the church of Laodicea, he mentions it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. 
And as he mentions the church of Laodicea, he says that uh, I have for you and those in Laodicea, and then he writes to them that in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As you have received Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Uh, we um, are to beware lest we are cheated through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So I have a feeling that Paul writing to Colossae in that epistle, mentioning the church of Laodicea, uh, he says to the church of Colossae, make sure that you read that letter that I wrote to Laodicea to that church. And then in Laodicea, make sure that you read that letter that I wrote to the church of Colossae. I would have loved to have seen that letter that he wrote 35 years prior to this time that Jesus is writing a letter to Laodicea to see what kind of church they were. But it is believed that perhaps that they were involved in, in um, vain philosophies and empty deceit and traditions of, of men. And, and Paul is emphasizing in Colossae at least that in Jesus is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. He is the amen. His word is true. Jesus also is faithful and true, the faithful and true witness. I am the one who is truth embodied. Uh, we've talked about, as in Colossians chapter 1 in previous studies, that Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. He is the beginning of creation of God. In other words, he is the source of creation. Beginning here in the Greek means he's the source, the origin, uh, not the first. Jesus is not created, and then he created everything else. That's what some of the cults will tell you. The Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, that Jesus was, was created. The Mormons will say that he was the firstborn among spirit children, and Lucifer was also born, and then Jesus created everything else. No, he is the creator, period. He, he goes right into, as we continue to read, after he gives his description of himself in verses 15 and 16, uh, he says to them, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I wish, this is Jesus speaking here, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish you were either, but you're not. But rather, you're lukewarm. And the analogy, of course, would be something that would ring a bell with them because of the lukewarm water that came through the city from Areopagus. The hot water turned to lukewarm from the cold springs in Colossae by the time they got to Laodicea, that it was, you know, warm water, tippet water. And hot water is useful, isn't it? It's useful when, uh, like, hot tubs or take a bath or a shower. Hot water is what we want, isn't it? Uh, when we uh, have a drink, and, and particularly this time of year, I, I, I like my hot coffee, hot chocolate, hot tea. There's nothing worse than you set your coffee down, and then you come back, and it's tippet, and you take a drink out of it. What do you want to do? You want to spit it out of your mouth. And same with cold water. I like cold water. I don't like tippet water 
especially when it's hot, but sometimes that's what you got to drink. I like to put a lot of ice in my, my water, and, and I always fuss at home. There's no ice. Somebody didn't make any ice, and, uh, but I like cold water. So cold water is useful, and hot water is useful, but tippet water isn't always useful. It isn't always, you know, refreshing uh, to us. But lukewarmness, lukewarmness is what Jesus is saying that characterizes your church spiritually. It speaks of indifference. It speaks of compromise. It plays the middle. And Jesus is saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. That way you would be refreshing, useful. But essentially Jesus is saying that you're so indifferent. There's compromise. You're playing the middle. And I want to say this, and we talked a little bit about it on Sunday when we talked about Elijah. Paul uses Elijah as an example in Romans chapter 11. But Elijah, you remember that he said to the nation before he issued that challenge to the prophets of Baal there in 1 Kings chapter 18. He would say to the people of Israel, he said, how long are you going to be between two opinions? If Baal is God, then worship him. But if Jehovah is God, then worship him. You're going back and forth. You're straddling the fence. You're between two opinions. You know, being in a state of lukewarmness, being in a place of, you know, two opinions, being in a place where you're straddling the fence is a miserable place to be. Because you got too much of the world in you to really enjoy Jesus, and you got too much of Jesus in you to enjoy the world. And if you're between two opinions and going back and forth and being indifferent and playing the middle, you know, and not committed, not desiring to grow in the Lord, not desiring to know him more, but just kind of like, you know, this time I'm a Christian, this day I'm, I'm in the world, and playing the middle, and there is no commitment, but, you know, you're, you're just lukewarm, it's like any of us, if you have a, a business, you have an employee, that he, just, he or she should look warm about what they do. You want somebody excited about what they're doing. Or in relationships, relationships suffer when there's lukewarmness there. There isn't a commitment that's there. And lukewarmness spiritually for a Christian is not good. Because first of all, it's not pleasing to the Lord, and we're not going to be refreshing to others, useful to others, and for the kingdom. And a lukewarm heart is a heart that is hard to convict. Have you ever talked to someone that they just have a lukewarm response to the truth and to the voice of God and really not excited about hearing from God, um, not you know, you know, wanting to, to really be sensitive to hearing the voice of the Lord? It's not important. It's not a priority for me. And you see, we see lukewarmness in the church today. And it's interesting because as we've been going through these seven letters to the seven churches, I also have said an application is there's many scholars that believe that they represent seven periods of church history, seven successive periods of church history. This is the last one in the church being, you know, characterized by lukewarmness, by lukewarmness. Many in the church today, at least in our culture, they don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about holiness. They don't want to hear about forgiving others. They don't want to hear about 
God's standard of morality. They don't want feel-good messages. There's a heavy emphasis on being entertaining, convenient Christianity with no conviction. I was talking to some pastors just this week, and they were telling me something that the latest trend in the church today for those who are trying to bring people in is you got to make a message for Malcolm. Now, if your name is Malcolm, please don't take this personally, but they have a, a person, Malcolm, and this is Malcolm. Malcolm is the person that, you know, maybe just a little interested in the Lord, and, and you bring them in, and you don't want to offend them. Uh, you want to bring them in and attract them with the music and with the lights and with some entertainment. You don't want to, to stumble them. You don't want to convict them. You don't want to be too heavy with them. You want them to feel good when they they leave. Now, we want people that aren't saved to come here. But I can't think of a more refreshing and, and message than Jesus Christ died for you and he loves you. And you can be forgiven of your sins as you come to the cross and have a new beginning and being born again by the Spirit of God. But, oh no, you got to be careful. You don't want to mention the cross because it might stumble them. You, you don't want to mention those kinds of things. You just kind of want them, and it's a watered-down kind of message. And I'm thinking, really? So you got to remember that you're speaking to Malcolm. That's kind of a code word to those that we want to minister to today. Remember that Paul said in the theme of the book of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I want us as a church, I want us to reach out to non-believers as much as we can, but we want to reach out to them with the truth of the gospel. The world needs the gospel, and we can't be ashamed of it. It is the good news that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And Jesus provided that forgiveness on the cross because he loves you, and he's calling you to repent. So we can't be afraid to use those words sin and repent and, and, you know, uh, and holiness and, and what God has called us to do. He's called us to devotion to him. And so notice that Jesus here says in verse 16, because you're neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, I'm about ready to, is what he's saying here, um, that I will vomit you. He hasn't said he's done it yet, but I'm about ready to do this. I'm very nauseous right now. What Jesus says to this church in verses 16 and 17 is the harshest, strongest words against any of the seven churches that we've looked at. Isn't it interesting in Matthew, it reminds me in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives a series of eight woes against the religious leaders. They were the harshest words that Jesus had to say against any group. He didn't have harsh words like that against the harlots or against uh, tax collectors or other sinners, but the religious leaders, he did have very harsh words to say to them. And as I read this, of course, it, it causes me to realize how much of an affront or how offensive it is, a state of lukewarmness that uh, Jesus doesn't like. And these strong words against that, that the state of lukewarmness is not pleasing to him at all. Now, <coughs> excuse me, we know what vomiting is, right? It's the worst sickness that there is. I'd rather have the colds, the fevers, the aches, 
But when you're sick to your stomach and vomiting, and, and some of you have gone through that in stomach flus or your kids and all that, that is the worst. <laughs> and we know it's a violent expulsion of something out of a person's mouth that's making them sick. So Jesus saying that your lukewarmness really makes me sick, makes me nauseous. You're self-reliant. You're indifferent to me, to heaven. It's an an affront to see man, sinful man, that was headed for eternal damnation. If it wasn't for the atoning work of Christ to be indifferent to him and lukewarm towards him. Jesus says, literally in the Greek, it says, I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. But he's not done, is he? Let's go to verse 17. That because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were professing church. You say they were a wealthy congregation, had lots of goods. They were uh, self-reliant. They were entertained. They were doing good as far as the world was concerned. Jesus says that you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor, blind, and naked. You're deceived is what you are. You're in a sad state. You don't even recognize your own condition. It's a sad state to be in spiritually. Lukewarmness. You don't recognize there's a problem and that there's a need to turn to God. And anyone who thinks or any church that thinks, well, you know, everything is great. You know, we're self-reliant. We have no real need to turn to Christ and look to him. It is the height of self-deception. And that is true for any area of our life where we become self-reliant. I'm rich. I have no need for you, Lord. And when it comes to my job, when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to the kids, when it comes to finances, uh, I'll rule over those areas and not really letting the Lord do that. And a continuance of doing that leads to lukewarmness spiritually. Just as hot water over time, as it flowed down that aqueduct, would become lukewarm and uh, self-deceived is is what the people realized. That this is lukewarmness. We thought it would be hot. They didn't know that Jesus here, that he saw them as poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Oh, we have money. Now, there's nothing wrong with having money. That's not what he's saying. But they were self-reliant. And Jesus says, spiritually, you're poor. That's your true condition. And we got clothes. We got these black wools, you know, and, and garments and things like that. He says, you're naked. It means that you don't have any shame. Oh, we got the I save, you know, uh, and, and we have that. He says, you're blind. We're happy. We're entertained. He says, you're miserable. And this church had redefined what it means to be doing well spiritually. And it was based on the world's definition, not God's definition. You see, we need to be careful of that here at Calvary Chapel. That we don't ever define success as the world defines success. How big, how grand, how popular. There's too many pastors that they desire to be celebrity pastors. I, sometimes I feel bad for young pastors because that pressure puts on them. 
and pastors at churches. You've got to be popular. You've got to be known. And you're successful in how big you are and how big your building is and pressure to do all these things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a big building or lots of people. But we need to look at success according to God's definition. They were not a well-taught church. He, Paul, mentions to the, to the church of Colossae when he's writing that epistle, Archippus, he actually mentions him in Philemon, and he mentions his son. He writes about to Archippus in Colossians chapter 4 to take heed to your ministry. So it's been suggested that he pastored this church of Laodicea at this time. And now over 30 years later, Paul writes that, you know, um, you're not well taught. You, you're, you're lukewarm. You think you have everything together, but you are poor, you're, you're blind, you're wretched, you're naked. So it is thought that over these 30-some years since Paul had written to them that, you know, maybe they weren't in the Word of God. Maybe Archippus struggled with ministering, teaching them, and it led to lukewarmness. I think that we can see that today as we consider that. You see, if we ever say we're not going to prioritize the teaching of the word, that we're going to focus on entertainment and programs and, you know, just how we can draw people in to tickle their ears and to, you know, have feel-good messages, listen, then what will happen is it will lead to lukewarmness. You know, teaching from the Bible is very important. But I'll tell you this, that teaching through the Bible that you'll get a perspective on what is said and you will see and I will see the continual themes about being dedicated and looking to Christ, his word, a work and knowledge of the Bible. In verse 18, we got to hurry. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the save that you may see. So he says, your miserable, blind, poor spiritual state, what is it that you're to do? He says, I counsel you. Now remember, he is the wonderful counselor. And they were looking for their own counsel. And he says, first of all, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. What does he mean by that? Well, Peter writes in 1 Peter that our faith being much more precious than gold, try it in the fire. The gold that Christ speaks of here is not obtainable in their banks, their money. The idea is you can't buy it with money. He is saying there are things that come from only me, that are only given by me. He says you are to buy from me, from me, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. That old song that used to be popular when I first became a Christian, I remember singing, some of you may remember that have been around, you know, in church for a while, the refiner's fire. Make me, you know, like gold, Lord. Make me like gold. Refine me. And refining means that the Lord at times will turn up the heat in our lives so that all the dross comes forward and then the goldsmith just kind of scrapes off the dross to purify us. He says, I want you to come to me. Let me do that work in your heart. It's not being self-centered. It's being God-centered to allow me to do that work. Second of all, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed. White garments speaks of, of course, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They were famous for that black wool, but I have garments to give or to shame your nakedness. 
is going to be revealed. And then thirdly, anoint your eyes with the eye save. And Jesus said, you're blind. I want to open up your eyes so that you can see your need for me. So you can see. So verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be jealous and repent. Keep in mind that as Jesus says these tough things, he lets them know the reason that I'm saying these things to you is not just to beat you up and tear you down, but I love you, and that's why I'm rebuking you. And we know that Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines us, chastens us, rebukes us because of his love for us. And he desires for them to hear what he is saying. It's not hopeless for this church. And, and love always does what is best for that other person. And the Lord wants the very best for us. So when we read his commandments, his precepts given to us in the word, and we feel the conviction of the Lord, it's because of his love for you and for me. He says that I, I want you to repent, be zealous. In other words, be eager, get hot again or get cold again. But get out of this lukewarmness. And then in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says here in verse 20, it's a familiar verse, isn't it? We hear that a lot of evangelistic, um, you know, crusades, perhaps uh, to behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And here it is a great evangelistic verse to use because he stands at the door to knock on the heart of your door. And, and if you will hear his voice and open up, he will come in. He'll forgive you, save you, have fellowship with him. You have relationship with him. But I want to bring it home closer to us here that are believers in any lukewarmness. And we can all kind of go through times and seasons, parts of our lives, areas of our lives where there's a lukewarmness. The Lord is saying, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And it means a continual knocking. And if we would just open up the door of our hearts, he wants to come in and, and dine with us. It speaks of fellowship. It's such a tender word given to this church that he had strong words to say to them about their lukewarmness. And he says, I'm knocking at the door. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? And quit being so self-reliant and indifferent. But let me in. There's a famous picture that you can see in, in um, I remember seeing it a lot in Christian bookstores and it has a picture of Jesus that he's knocking on the door with this verse on it of a cottage and he's knocking on it but there's no, no doorknob. The doorknob's on the inside. And he's not going to bust his way into your life but he's going to continually knock and maybe tonight as we go to prayer here maybe there's been some lukewarmness that maybe there's been indifference. You've been between two opinions, straddling the fence, whatever it is, that the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart right now. And for you to, to open up that door, for him to come in and fellowship and dine with you and minister to you. He loves you. These words are given to us because he's being honest with us. He wants us to do well. 
So I pray for all of us that we would consider this and that we would go to the Lord and say, Lord, please, I don't want lukewarmness to come into my life, into my spiritual life, that I want you to touch me and draw me to yourself and that you keep stirring my heart for you and my love for you. And I'm going to open up the door of my heart to you for you to come in and dine with me, sup with me. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, there's so much here. We could have spent more time in this word. But, but Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had together tonight. And I, I thank you that we can look at this church that was characterized by lukewarmness. And, Lord, we don't want to look at it and, and, and say, oh, man, how could they do that? Because this can be us in areas of our lives or, Lord, in honesty of our hearts. We want to come to you and say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me for the lukewarmness that can be there. Just taking things for granted. Lord, just not really allowing you to be the Lord over every area of our lives or every day of our lives, to become self-reliant, to push you out of certain things out of our lives, whatever the case may be. So, Lord, I do pray, first of all, tonight, if there's anyone here listening that you've never opened up your heart to Jesus, he loves you, he came and died on the cross for you. The gospel is this, that you have sinned and Jesus Christ came to take care of the sin problem. He died on the cross for your sins because the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. And we are eternally lost unless we are forgiven. And the only sacrifice for sin was Jesus on the cross. And he died for you because he loves you. He was put into a grave and he rose again. And he's alive. He conquers sin and death. So you can come as whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To the invitation as he knocks on the door of your heart, will you open up your heart to him? And ask him to be your Lord and Savior, to be forgiven of your sins. You can do that right now. You can say, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. Lord, um, I believe you died on the cross for me. And I ask as I come to you that through the shed blood of Jesus, forgive me. I believe you're alive. You rose again, speaking to my heart. I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for forgiving me and coming in and fellowshipping with me, that I have a relationship with you and the Father now, the hope of eternal life in this new beginning. And I do want to know you and walk with you. And Lord, to be yielded to your Lordship in every way, help me to do that, to learn of you, to enjoy you in Jesus' name. Maybe you're here tonight in the honesty of your heart, you're saying there's been lukewarmness. There's hasn't been commitment. There has I've been indifferent to you, Lord. But you brought me here to hear this message. And Lord, I want to change that. And I open up the door of my heart for you to establish that lordship over every area of my life and every day of my life. And Lord, I, I ask that you forgive me of my attitudes, my indifference, not being committed, 
just doing things on my own and not allowing you to really rule over my life in every area of my life because you are the good shepherd. So Lord, I, I want to recommit myself to allowing you to be truly Lord every day and Lord, to press in, to know you, to walk with you, to be used of you.